Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. In this series, Genesis, A New Perspective, we are trying to breathe fresh life into this ancient text that lays the foundation for the Christian Bible. Each week, we will be exploring different ways that these Genesis stories impact us and the world around us and our ways of understanding God. I hope you enjoy. So for the past couple of weeks, we have been talking about the story of Joseph, and I know many of you will be very, very sad to hear that next week is our last sermon in the series on Genesis. I can see the tears just welling up in your eyes, dripping down your faces. You're sad to be moving on, but all good things have to come to an end. Next week, I hope you can be here because we have something very special planned for you during that sermon. Uh, I've been working a lot on this for a while, and I think it's going to be a really, really amazing end to everything we've been working towards for the last year. So please, if you can, be here for that. But this week, we continue on with Joseph's story. And we've been looking at Joseph's story primarily from the perspective of the Genesis narrative. And this week, I want to do my favorite thing, which is bring you some historical context to what's been going on. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk about some of the history that was taking place in Egypt around the time that Joseph would have gone there as a slave. And then from there, we're going to start comparing what happened historically to what we are reading in the Genesis narrative so that we can separate out fact from fiction. So you ready to go? Ready to do this? Don't look so excited. Come on, guys. It's going to be a good time. Trust me. I'm going to take you through it. It'll be easy. So we start off with Egypt. Now, many of you, I would assume, like myself, believe that when Joseph goes to Egypt, Egypt is just one country with this guy who rules over it whose name is Pharaoh. Is that how you tend to think of it? Okay, it's how I used to think of it. But you do a little research and you find out that actually at the time that Joseph was sold into slavery, Egypt had devolved into chaos. Now originally, Egypt was ruled by two royal families. One family ruled what was known as the Upper Kingdom, which for some reason is in the south, and the other family ruled the Lower Kingdom, which is in the north. It probably has something to do with elevations. So they're holding on to this Egypt, and it's a unified front. And then what happens is there's a very severe famine. As I've told you in previous sermons, this happened quite often. And the people end up revolting against the royal families, and they can no longer maintain power. And so these groups, these warlords come in, they call themselves princes, but the warlords come in and they start carving out for themselves little pieces of Egypt that they hold on to. This is not unlike what is happening today in Iraq because the government is not strong enough to hold the whole country together, so groups like ISIS are coming in and carving out pieces of this for themselves. Well, one group that was particularly good at defeating the Egyptian army was a group of people known as the Hyksos, H-Y-K-S-O-S. The Hyksos were Semites, not unlike the Israelites. Now, I use that word Semite. You all probably know the word anti-Semitic, right? Which means you're against the, the Jews. So the Jews are Semites. And these people who are the Hyksos are also Semites. The Hyksos actually means, that word specifically means desert Princes. Now, scholars don't all agree on where 
the Hyksos came from. But the predominant theory suggests that the Hyksos were a conglomeration of different tribes who joined together from the land of Canaan. Now, you should know the land of Canaan, right? We've only talked about this throughout all of Genesis, which is, what's that land? That's the land that was promised to God, right? Promised by God to Abraham, right? Okay, so that's his land, right? Abraham's land. So these tribes all come from this area. They come down and they wallop the Egyptian army. And the reason why they were able to do this is because they possessed a piece of technology that the Egyptians did not possess. Horse-drawn iron chariots. Now what you have to realize is that horses are not native to Egypt. So when the Hyksos came down with horses, and they had chariots attached to them. That was the first time the Egyptians had ever seen horses in their entire lives, let alone a chariot attached to the back of it. And if you know anything about horses, if you've ever gone to the racetracks, you probably know that horses are kind of fast, right? They can run very quickly. And the Egyptians had no animal that could match their speed. On top of this, the Hyksos placed in the back of those iron chariots their most skilled archers and missileers, people who would throw spears. And they essentially slaughtered, they decimated the Egyptian army. So they come in and they carve out this little chunk for themselves in northern Egypt, which is basically where all the vegetation is. That's a good place. You want to take that over if that's what you're going to take over. And they established for themselves their capital in the city of Avaris. Now, when they get to the city of Avaris, they establish their capital. They also establish a king who they call Pharaoh. This is the Pharaoh who more than likely Joseph would have met during his journey down to Egypt in the Genesis narrative. Are we all on the same page? Are you following me so far? Okay, so we've set up what Egypt is like. Now we're going to take some of this historical knowledge and compare it to what we're reading in the Genesis narrative. So we need to start from the beginning. Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers to some Ishmaelite traders. He's sold in a place known as Dothan. Now, Dothan is 200 miles northeast of Avaris. And when he was sold into slavery, Joseph would not have just jumped on the back of a donkey and been ridden down. He would have had to walk that entire distance, and he would have been in shackles. And on top of that, he wouldn't have been given any water. Usually, during slave trains that were going from one place to another, more than half of the slaves in that train would die of thirst. So assuming that he could make it, the 200-mile trek from Dothan all the way down to Avaris, then that is when he would be put up for auction. Now, I told you last week, when slaves were put up for auction, they were sold generally to work the fields or on building projects. But the slaves that showed above average intelligence, they would be sold to work in the household of nobility. Now, in the story, he gets sold to this guy whose name is Potiphar. Potiphar is not nobility, but he works for the nobility because he's the captain of the guard. And as the captain of the guard, what that means is he oversees Pharaoh's personal security detail. So, assuming he can make it all the way down there, assuming he was still alive, and assuming that he showed above average intelligence, he could make it into Potiphar's house. So two for two, we're okay so far. When we get into Potiphar's house... He ends up managing the household because he's so good at what he does. He rises to be in charge of all of the other slaves. But then Potiphar's wife, she wants to have an affair with Joseph. 
And when she does this, she pursues him, he rejects her, and then she ends up accusing him of attempting to rape her. When Potiphar finds out about this, he ends up placing Joseph in prison. Now this should be the first red flag to you that this story is not entirely accurate. The reason being, if Potiphar found out that one of his slaves, even a good one, had attempted to rape his wife, he would not have put him in prison. He would have had him executed, and he probably would have executed him himself. Slaves, no matter how good they are, would not have been given such a lenient punishment. Secondly, the story of Potiphar and his wife is actually a very common Egyptian fable. It's a fable that would have been told all over Egypt, and the fable goes something like this. A woman pursues a man who is not her husband, and when that man rejects her advances, she accuses that man of impropriety, and she is believed. You can read stories all over Egypt about this particular kind of fable. So the authors of the story of Joseph use this fable as a plot device because they need to keep Joseph close to Pharaoh. If Joseph had been executed, well, that wouldn't have worked out too well. Story's over, right? So what they need to do is they need to keep him close. And he could have sent him normally to a penal colony where he would have been worked to death. That wouldn't have worked out either. But because he's the captain of the guard, he can send Joseph to the royal prison. And by sending him to the royal prison, he can be called up to interpret Pharaoh's dreams. And so the story goes that Joseph says that there will be seven years of plenty, seven years of good harvest, seven years of famine, and that Pharaoh should appoint someone to strategically store up grain during the seven years of plenty so that the population can survive during the seven years of famine. Pharaoh then appoints Joseph to this position, which was known as Grand Vizier, the second highest ranking official in all of Egypt. Now, this is perhaps the most outlandish aspect of this story. Because you have to imagine, would the king of Egypt, the king of this northern region, would he actually appoint a slave to be second in command? Think about that for a second. That would be like the president of the United States going to a federal penitentiary and removing an accused rapist and placing him in the place of vice president. It wouldn't happen today, and it wouldn't happen back then. At best, Joseph would have risen to be one of his advisors and joined the ranks of the other dream interpreters. And yet, as outlandish as that seems, we have archaeological evidence to suggest that Joseph was, in fact, the Grand Vizier in the Hyksos administration. Except that historically, the way that he got there is not nearly as exciting as the Genesis narrative. So I'm going to take you through it real fast so that you understand how it happened. But in order to do that, I need to take you back to a sermon that I preached back in January. This is why you have to pay attention to everything I say, because I'm always going back to sermons that I preached previously. So back in January, I talked to you for the first time about Abraham. And I told you that with Abraham, that's the first time that we're talking about an actual verifiable historical figure in the Bible. And I told you that because we have archaeological evidence that tells us that his grandson, Jacob, was a real person. At the time, I didn't tell you what that archaeological evidence was because I'd have to tell you about the city of Avaris and the Hyksos, and that would have taken way too much time, and it fit better right here. So, to tell you about what they found, there's this professor. His name is Manfred Bitek. He has spent his entire life excavating the ancient city of Avaris, and he has found no less 
than nine signet rings that were worn by the people in Joseph's court. Inscribed on those signet rings is the name Yekov, or in English, Jacob. He would have worn, had them wear those rings because he wanted them to know that they were working for the family of Jacob. This is how we know that Jacob was a real person. So more than likely, let me tell you how this all came together. So Jacob's tribe, Jacob's family, was part of this Hyksos that came down to conquer northern Egypt. And when this happened, when the Hyksos came down and they all were working together to kind of take this over, Jacob's family played a really important role in that military campaign. Now, once they came in and they established their capital in the city of Avaris and they appointed Pharaoh, their king, Joseph was made second in command. He was appointed as the Grand Vizier, more than likely because it was political. His father played a very important role in the capturing of northern Egypt, and they wanted to reward that, so they placed his most beloved son, right, in that position. Does that make sense, what I'm telling you? You follow me on how he got there? Okay. Now, we don't know a whole lot about the real historical Joseph. But what we do know is that he did institute a food rationing program while he was in office. The remains of major large grain silos have been found all around northern Egypt, and they were used to store up food during times of famine. Now, whether he made these because of a dream that Pharaoh had or because he was just a really good planner is unknown. But what we do know is, is that the Hyksos were able to maintain their power as a result of these grain silos, which lasted for more than 100 years. The second thing we know is that Joseph had a reputation for being a very kind and merciful person. Now, in the story that we read today, when Joseph's brothers, they come to see him, right, and he has the opportunity to seek revenge on them for selling him into slavery. But does he do that? No. He ends up, right, giving them what they need, and he reveals himself to them, and he doesn't take revenge on them. Now, even though this story doesn't really have a basis in reality, it is a reflection of who he was as a person, which was he was very kind and merciful. And that's a very interesting reputation to have in the ancient world. When there were famines in the ancient world, it's not like today where we can just ship containers of food wherever it's needed. Back then, if there was a famine, a lot of people starved to death. And I want you to put yourself in his shoes. Imagine you're the second highest ranking official in northern Egypt, and you have to divvy this food out. Now imagine this for a second. You have tens of thousands of people at your doorstep, and you have to keep enough grain in reserve to make sure that you get through the famine, which you don't know how long that's going to last, but then you need to give enough of it out to make sure that not everybody starves to death. That's a hard thing to do, right? So most officials who were in charge of food rationing, they were quite cruel. They usually wouldn't give any food to the peasants and they would let them starve, keeping all of it for the nobility. But Joseph was so good at his job that he had gained this reputation as being kind and merciful among the peasants. And I think that's a really fascinating thing to note because people in positions of power don't usually get associated with mercy, now do they? People who are in power often like to demonstrate their power with acts of domination 
and aggression because they want you to know that they're in charge and through fear, they want you to carry out their actions. I've been trying to think of a different way for you all to understand this because all of you have experienced this in your life, haven't you, people who try to dominate you with power, right? Well, as I was thinking about it, I was like, you know what, the most universal understanding of this that people will relate to is the dynamic between a parent and their children. Now, even if you've never had children, you have a parent, and you can remember what it was like when you were a child. So, when a parent has a child and the child isn't doing what they wanted to do, they will usually attempt to overpower the child. Now, they will do this by either dominating the child with words, yelling at them, or physically overpowering them and forcing them to do what they want. So in this way, the parent sees power as control. Controlling the person, controlling their child. Now, you all know that there's a lot of negatives to that, right? Because eventually, that child is going to grow up and is going to resent you, and they're going to become as powerful as you are. Because eventually that child is going to be able to be as powerful as you verbally and physically. And when that happens, you have no recourse. So the flaw in this way of thinking is the idea that power is in the ability to control the people around you. But what Joseph's story tells us is that actually real power is not in controlling other people, but rather in controlling yourself. You see, when Joseph is confronted with his brothers, he has the opportunity to come down on them real hard. He could enslave them. He could send them to a penal colony, in essence, showing the depth of his power. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he chooses to show them mercy, and in doing so, demonstrates his self-control. Now, he has every right to want to hurt his brothers. He has every right to want to send them to prison and keep them enslaved for the rest of their lives, but he doesn't do that because he wants them to understand that he has this self-control, and by doing that, what happens is they end up showing him a huge amount of respect and obedience. Now, I don't know many parents who have mastered the art of self-control. I certainly haven't. I can tell you that much. But I do have a good friend of mine who, back when I was in Harrisburg, she would go with me on trips, on the mission trips, and her name was Kristen, and we got to talking about her family. And she told me how her father, when she was growing up, never once got angry at her, never once yelled at her. He didn't even raise his voice the entire time she was growing up. Now, Kristen was no angel, let's be honest. She did a lot of things wrong, like anybody learning how to navigate the world. But she realized when she was an adult, looking back, how much the way he parented her resulted in this feeling of respect and admiration for who he was. She told me this story about how when she was 16 or 17, she'd gotten in some trouble with her girlfriends, and it was big trouble, it wasn't minor. And she was going home and she was waiting to kind of be punished for what happened. And her father came up the stairs and he didn't yell at her, he didn't get angry, he didn't even raise his voice, and he didn't punish her. But she could hear the disappointment in his tone. And that was enough to break her right there, just that little timber of disappointment. 
and she started crying and she said, you know, I'm so sorry, Dad. I will never, ever make this same mistake again. I promise you, I will never do it. If he had spent his whole life yelling and screaming and being angry at her, then when she came home, if he had just shown a little bit of disappointment in his voice, I wouldn't have done anything. But the fact that he had dealt with her his whole life in a very even way, when she heard that, she knew how disappointed he was, and that was enough. That is power. What you don't realize is, is that his power, her father's power, was in his mercy. You see, we as people, we don't often appreciate that the greatest power we have as human beings is when we have every justification to hurt, dominate, and control those who have wronged us, and we choose not to. Mercy is the ultimate power. And I'll say that again. Mercy is the ultimate power. So as you leave here today, I want you to consider how do you demonstrate power in your life? Do you demonstrate it through acts of aggression and domination? Do you try to overpower people with your words and actions? Or do you show your power through acts of mercy, love, and forgiveness? Whenever I find myself in the former camp, I always think of Joseph and how he dealt with his brothers. And it reminds me that God has the same option. God could deal with us with violence, wrath, and anger. But God doesn't do that. God shows us mercy, love, and forgiveness. And this is why Genesis is so important, so important for you to understand what's happening when we get to the New Testament. Everything in Genesis has been building up to this one guy, Joseph, who very much like Jesus, shows love through mercy and forgiveness. And let me tell you, that is the reason why I became a Christian, is because of this man, Joseph. And next week, I'm going to talk to you about that. Next week's sermon, it's going to bring it all together. We're going to come full circle, and it's going to set us up so well for what we're going to be talking about in September when we start dealing with Jesus and Mark. I look forward to seeing you all next week. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.fpcah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.